Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. You'll turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. This morning, we're going to take just a small portion of the text and meditate on a, a seemingly obscure idea that Paul introduces here, uh, looking at verses 8, 9, and 10 of Romans chapter 13. So hear the word of the Lord. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Father, bless the preaching of your word and bless the receiving of it as well. In Christ's name, amen. When I was in sixth grade, I started studying the saxophone with the intention of mastering that beautiful and complicated instrument. When I was in my early 20s, not satisfied, I took up a second, even more complicated instrument, the bagpipe, and decided that I would master that instrument as well. Now, knowing this, you might wonder why it is that I've never played the saxophone for you here in church and never played the bagpipe for you here in worship as well. Well, the explanation is pretty simple. I began to study those instruments, but I did not continue. I ran into a roadblock in both cases that stopped me because it turns out that the way that you learn to play a musical instrument is not the way I thought it worked. When I signed up to learn the saxophone, I kind of imagined that I would show up and that someone would explain to me how you play. And then once I'd been given the explanation, I would just play because that's how education works. You go to class, there's a lecture, the teacher explains the subject to you, you understand it, and then now you move on and you master. Maybe you take a test and you pass. That's the way it works, but that's not the way the saxophone worked. And it's not the way bagpipes work either. Because the knowledge that you need in order to play a musical instrument doesn't work that way. Right? It doesn't come to you in the form of a lecture. It requires something else. That's true for languages as well. It's the reason why, as many of you know, I studied French and I studied German and I studied Russian and now I've studied Greek and I've studied Hebrew and yet I speak none of those languages without a lot of help because it turns out you don't learn languages by just having them explained to you. There's a process, a repetitive process of formation that results in that kind of knowledge. So in order to learn an instrument or to learn a language, you've got to practice. You've got to repeat over and over again the things that you're being taught. And when you start, it doesn't sound good. I'm one of those people, I like to be good at everything I do. And when I'm not good at something, I don't like to do it. So you can imagine how painful it was to try to play 
the saxophone or to try to speak a language knowing how silly it sounded, but it always does at first. And it requires perseverance, practice, a repetitive process of formation. That's how that kind of knowledge works. Every Sunday since we started looking at Romans chapter 12, I understand that there's been a certain repetitiveness to what we've been talking about. It's love, love, love over and over again. Love this, love that. Love one another, love your neighbors, love your enemies, love authority, love justice. Can't we be done with that? Can't we move on? I get it. I get it. I've got to love my enemies. Next subject. No. Because discipleship is one of those things that you don't learn by having it explained to you. Discipleship is also something that requires a repetitive process of formation. We've been talking about what it means to live in Christ. And what it means to live in Christ is to be formed repetitively through these attempts to love. Now, along the way, in this discipleship, in this repetition, in this reflection, and in this constant practice, along the way, God gives us insights. There are these realizations that we make. This is why sometimes a passage in Scripture, something you have heard all your life, suddenly starts to make sense in a way that it never did before. It has meaning that it never had before, because the the knowledge that it possessed was not knowledge that could just be explained. It had to be lived. It had to be formed into you in that way. And in the words that we just read of Paul, Paul's giving us one of these insights, one of these realizations that ought to be a little bit mind-blowing. He's telling us the way the law works and saying that it works in a way that's very different from how we tend to think about the law. This is something that is meant to blow our minds. Because Paul is saying to us that as we progress, that as we are formed, that as we attempt over and over again to love in these impossible ways, one of the things that we're going to come to realize is that all of the law, all of the law, is fulfilled through the simple practice of love. In other words, love radically simplifies the life of obedience. Love radically simplifies the life of obedience. And when I say radically there, I don't mean it in the way we usually say that word radical to mean like like amazing. You know, this is how we said radical in the 80s. If something was radical, it just meant it was cool. It was, it was awesome, that sort of thing. But the word radical in its original context comes from the Latin radix, which is root. So when we say something is radical, what that literally means is not this is a solution that is just wild and amazing. It's that a radical solution is a solution that goes to the root of the problem. So love radically simplifies the life of obedience in the sense that love goes to the root of what it means to keep and live the law. In other words, you might think of love as the positive expression of law. 
Now, when you think about the law, when you think about the Ten Commandments, for example, we tend to think in terms of, of, of negation, of prohibition, because the law is often stated in the negative, thou shalt not. Paul gives us a list. It's not even all of the Ten Commandments, but he gives a, a list that represents the second table of the Ten Commandments, the duties that we have towards our neighbors, towards one another. And it's all these thou shalt nots. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet, he says. But every negative implies a positive. If there's something you shouldn't do, then there's also something you should do. And this is why the Westminster divines, when they work their way through the Ten Commandments, they do it positively, not just negatively. They look at what the commandment forbids, but they also look at what the commandment requires. You shall not kill? Oh, then I guess that means we have a positive duty, a positive responsibility towards life. And that's the way they approach those commandments. It's not just about what you shouldn't do. It's also about what you should do instead. But when your head starts spinning with all the do's and all the don'ts, and you start trying to to quantify in your mind what exactly is required by the law, remember Paul's words here. There's one duty. There's one debt, which is to love each other. When you're doing love, Paul says, you don't do wrong to a neighbor. And that's why love fulfills the law. That love is the, the action that prevents the, the, that negation from happening. Which means that all of our sin, if you think about it, everything that we do that we shouldn't do, all of our wrongdoing against God, against our neighbors, all of that ultimately is a failure of love. Every sin we've ever committed, we committed because we chose not to love in that instant, because we betrayed what we loved, because we did not love as we should. We did not do our duty. We did not pay our debt of love. But when you hear it put that way, uh, there should be an objection that comes to your mind. When we start talking about uh, love as a debt or as a duty, doesn't that feel a little bit like it diminishes love? To, To reduce love to a duty, to something I have an obligation to do seems contradictory to what we know about love, right? You'll often hear people talk about love and they'll say something like, love must be freely given. Otherwise, it's not love at all. Love must be freely given. Otherwise, how can it be love? When that assumption about love is actually at the foundation of the way a lot of Christians talk about uh, free will, for example. God wanted to be love. And love isn't love unless it's given freely. So God, whether he wanted to or not, was in a bind. When he made human beings, he had to give them free will. Otherwise, they couldn't love him because love isn't love unless it's freely given. If you know someone in your life, maybe a friend, family member, who says to you something like, you owe me love. It is your duty to love me. You're probably thinking to yourself, wait a second, hold on. That's not how love works. People don't love out of obligation. You can't just love because it's your duty. And it seems like, I don't know. I don't want to be told. I don't want my wife to come to me and say, Mark, I love you. 
because it's my duty, because I kind of have to. It's an obligation, and I want to do my duty. It doesn't sound very loving. But I want you to consider something. As weird as it may sound to hear Paul talking about love as a debt that is owed, as a duty that we need to perform, maybe, just maybe, Scripture understands love better than we do. And maybe our failure to find love and our struggle with what love is and how to love can be traced back to the fact that we don't understand the way Paul is speaking about love here. In fact, we find it strange and even a little bit abhorrent. Maybe the problem is us. Maybe when Paul says that love is a a debt that is owed, that love is a duty that must be fulfilled. He is not reducing love down to duty or obligation. Maybe what he's doing is ennobling and magnifying our sense of what duty means and what love is. God is love. The Apostle John says God is love, but to understand love, You have to listen to God. The sad truth is, our struggle reveals the fact that we are wrong about love. We're wrong about love. Sinful people crave autonomy. We want freedom from God, freedom from obligation, freedom from the duty that God expects from his creatures. And so it's natural for us to think of love and duty as in conflict with one another, two things that just don't go together. But that's only because we don't understand love. I mean, look at what John actually wrote in 1 John 4, 8. If you look there, he says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. What do we do with words like that? How do we as a church interpret words like that? Well, I'll tell you the way that I see those words used most often is in a reductionistic way. As if what John was saying is, well, God is just love. If you want to understand God, he's just love. And everything that's not love can't be from God. Use that phrase, God is love, in order to cancel out the things in Scripture that don't seem loving. Simple. The Bible is full of stuff that when you read it, it's hard to reconcile with the idea of love. But when John says God is love, he gives us an out. It just means that other stuff in the Bible, it's just not real. Doesn't mean what people say it means, or or, or maybe it's not reliable in some other way because God is love. How could anything that's not loving be from God? The Bible teaches something that offends us, that It doesn't make sense to us. Well, God is love. Anything unloving, it must not be scripture. It must not be authority. Well, the problem with that logic, though, is that when we think that way, the thing that we do often without realizing is we smuggle in our definition of love. People never say to themselves, well, God is love, and the Bible says God does this. Therefore, somehow that must be loving, and I need to understand how love fits with that. Instead, we say to ourselves, well, I know what love is. I don't need it explained to me. 
this cannot be from God because it's just not loving. But in doing that, we have imported our own idea of love. Now, the Apostle John in 1 John 4, he's not reducing God to the human construct of love. He's not saying, oh, God's not complicated. God is just love. That's all there is to it. That's not what he's doing. Instead, he is taking our idea of what it means to love and linking the the complex and incomprehensible God to it in a way that heightens the, the sense of the awe and the mystery and the power of love and ought to give us a sense of how badly we fall short when it comes to understanding love. In other words, here's the logic of what's being said by the Apostle John and also by Paul. So God is love, yes. But remember, the law of God reveals the character of God. So there is no contradiction between love and the law of God. There's no tension between love and law. Therefore, love fulfills the law. So to say that love fulfills the law is not somehow abrogating the law. It's not denigrating it. It's not saying, well, the law came from a God of wrath, but now we have a God of love. None of that. Rather, love fulfills law because love is the positive expression of the character of God, and the law reflects the character of God as well. So Paul's preaching love to us, but it's interesting to ask ourselves, what's his text? What scripture is he preaching as he preaches this love to us? It's not a New Testament text. It's an Old Testament text. In fact, it's from the part of the Old Testament that's about as Old Testament as the Old Testament ever gets, Leviticus. When you think of of the Old Testament at its oldest, we think of Levitical law. And here in Leviticus chapter 19 is the text that Paul is preaching to us and has been preaching to us as we worked our way through the text. Listen to these words. This is just an excerpt, by the way. If you go back to Leviticus 19, you'll find more of this, and it should be very familiar to you from the ground that we've already covered in Romans. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's Leviticus 19, 17, and 18. And at this point, you should be having a light bulb moment. Because to answer the question, how do I live the Christian life? To answer the question, how do I live in Christ? The Apostle Paul has turned to Leviticus to answer that question. He's turned to the text where the law is being given. And he's telling us it is all about love. Love has always fulfilled the law. Only sin created a tension between love and law. And Paul teaches the same thing, not just here, but throughout the New Testament. If you look at Galatians 5.14, you'll find this. James, who we often like to pit against Paul, James says the same thing in James chapter 2, verse 8. There is no contradiction between the two. So there's nothing weird or ironic or strange about the phrase, the law of love. 
because love fulfills law. Love fulfilled the law in the life of Christ. And those who live in Christ follow him by practicing love. We look at John or first John four, eight, but we need to look at the rest of what John says. When he says God is love. He doesn't stop there. He actually continues and explains what this means. He says in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So John says that we love one another in response to because of God's love for us. Our love is a response to his love. It's not the cause of his love. And Paul concurs with that. Like Paul's not saying to us that we can be justified by loving our neighbors. He's not saying, hey, stop trying to keep the law, just love, and you will inevitably keep the law, and God will count you righteous, and you can go to heaven. That's not what's happening here. Of course, Paul is not suddenly offering us a new plan of salvation. Instead, he's pointing us to the fact that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law through a life of perfect love. Not just because Jesus didn't sin. It's not just what Jesus didn't do, but also, more importantly, what he did do. His active love. And we are justified by that love work of Jesus Christ. And now, the Spirit is working in us. Spirit is making us live more and more like Jesus. And that means practicing the difficult love that we've been talking about. It means loving one another and also loving our enemies. It means loving the authorities when the authorities are on your side. It means loving authority when it's against you. That difficult love that we've been called to is the love that Jesus Christ perfectly embodied. And in his love, he fulfilled the law. On the cross, there was a certain taunt, a mocking thing that was said to Jesus. All three of the synoptic gospels record this same thing, where people are watching Jesus as he's being crucified, as he is giving his life on the cross, and they're making fun of him, and they're trying to belittle him. And what they say is this, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. They're pointing to the people who believed in him, the people who followed him. And they're saying, look, look at your so-called savior there on the cross. He saved others but he lacks the power to save himself. He cannot come down off the cross. We got him. He has lost. Look and see that he could not save you. Now, the reason why all three of the synoptic gospels record this taunt is because it captures irony. And they are intent on recording every single thing that people spoke at the crucifixion that later came back to haunt them. The things people said because they did not comprehend what was happening. Consider 
the irony as Jesus endures the suffering of the cross in order to be the savior of the world, human beings are saying, ha ha, he cannot come down off the cross. He cannot save himself. Well, the reality known to God and to the angels known to us now is that Jesus Christ had no need to save himself. And the reason that he did not come down off of the cross was not because he lacked the power to save, but because he was in the midst of doing the work of salvation in that moment. He was truly saving others by giving of himself an expression that we're told is the highest expression of love. But Jesus himself says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You think about that, and you remember those taunting words. And as they ring in your mind, remember the words of Ephesians 5.2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Paul says, love does no harm to one's neighbor. The reason love fulfills the law is that love does not transgress against the neighbor. Love doesn't sin against another. That's expressed negatively. But how would you express that positively? What what does it mean positively? Well, Paul's already given us the words for that in chapter 12, verse 18. Love lives peaceably with all. Lives peaceably with all, which is what he calls us to do. As much as it is in your power, live peaceably, at peace with all. Or to use another one of Paul's expressions, from Acts 24 this time, love always takes pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Paul strove to live a life void of offense, the King James says, towards God and man. Why? Because he was trying to practice love. Because he was trying to follow Christ and do what Christ had done. He didn't want to, to make war with his enemies. Instead, He wanted to have a clear conscience towards God and towards man. He wanted to be at peace as much as possible with his neighbor. He wanted to follow Christ by fulfilling the law in love. If you want to live in Christ, then practice that. Practice that day in and day out. And as you love, as you love one another, as you love your neighbor, as you love your enemy, when you start doing it, it's going to sound bad. You're going to do it poorly, and you're going to be embarrassed by how it turns out, and you're going to want to stop. It's going to squeak. It's going to be impossible to endure, just like my saxophone playing. But that's why you have to keep practicing. It's why you have to keep loving. And as you do, you're being formed by the power of the Spirit. You'll get the notes wrong. Of course you will. But just keep playing. Just keep loving. Just keep peacemaking. And feel that the Spirit is making peace in you and through you. Thank you for listening. 
You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.